Hello and welcome to Living Wow Feminist. Living Wow Feminist is a weekly podcast talking with feminists about the ups and downs, ins and outs, and the emotional rollercoaster ride of living a feminist life. I'm your host, feminist writer, researcher, and author, Jen Thorpe. Today on the podcast, I'm talking with Terry Ann Adams. Terry Ann is a writer and commentator from Johannesburg. They have an honours in history from the University of Pretoria, where they focused on the disability rights movement in South Africa and disability representation in American film. They have spoken and written on ableism and feminism. In 2020, Terry Ann published their debut novel, Those Who Live in Cages, with Jakarta Media. Those Who Live in Cages is a story of five women connected to one another through blood and circumstance, Bertha, Janice, Laverne, Kaylin, and Raquel, all living in El Dorado Park. As the review in New Frame puts it, they are women full of hope for their families and futures, bumping up against the obstacles of class limitation and a patriarchal, religious, and judgment-driven environment. It's a story where place comes alive as character. El Dorado Park is a location that shapes the lives of each of these characters, whether they are yearning to leave or destined to stay. In their interview with New Frame writer Benwe Adebayo, Adams says, I think that the world is a dystopia, that systemic oppression kills any form of hope for real change or progress. As individuals, we can move forward slightly, but the greater good is not realized and many are left behind. Only when systems that oppress us are dismantled will we see real change. So today I'll be talking with Terry Ann about writing as one tool to address social issues, their work as a disability activist, and what comes next for them. Welcome, Terry Ann. Thank you so much for having me, Jen. Super excited. So let's start with your book. When did you get the idea to write a book and what was the writing process like for you? So um, Those Living Cages came out of necessity. Um, I think as most of these things do, uh, I was unemployed in 2016. I just finished my honors. My, I had my dreams shattered about, you know, being a museum curator because I did my honors in history. And I took all of that pain and my mom was like, why don't you just write a book? I mean, you can write, write a book. And I, I just started writing these monologues and these like sort of diary entries and it shaped up into a plot and then I realized okay wait we might have a novel on our hands here (laughs) so then I continued with it um I did research on how many words uh it would take to make a novel and then I started working towards that goal Everyone should have a mom like that. That's so great. Um, you mentioned there when you're in your answer that your book is almost all written in first-person monologues or diary entries from the five main characters, either through their diary, a telephone conversation, or their thoughts. Why did you choose that format, and what did it help you to convey? I was so so I was playing um, with the idea of first-person narrative when I did my course in Afrikaans at the University of Pretoria, and I was looking at different ways of writing things and it started out with me exploring poetry in what we would call cops or colored Afrikaans and I realized that all of my poetry is these little stories that people tell you know it's these first person stories and I thought what if we do that in prose 
And that became a weird little um, four-act play thing that I wrote of just um, first-person perspectives on one single issue, which is this girl's pregnancy. Um, And then I thought, what if we could take that and write a novel out of it where you don't hear anything from the other side you're actually experiencing this journey as bertha you're experiencing it as kaylin you you don't have the noise of the second person or even the third person narrator coming and telling you just you know giving you a god perspective on how things are going so it was super experimental i didn't think it was going to work I didn't think it would actually like make a coherent story. So I'm super um, grateful that it actually hit with people and people understood what I was trying to do. It definitely works. And I think now that you say oh, that you're experimenting with a play, that makes so much sense because this could easily go into a stage show with these five women telling you their stories from their perspectives. I think it's very powerful. And it's powerful as well that they are the ones that get to choose how we meet them. And you do hear about each of them through the other one's um, stories or diary entries, but you also get the chance for them to define themselves. And the story is told just from the perspective of five female characters, although the men in their lives are certainly ever-present and causing chaos. Why the choice to only write from the female gaze? I was so sick of reading and viewing content where we see things from the male gaze. And even when you have a a man trying to write a feminist story or a female story, I hate the word female, a woman's story, um, you still see that this is a man writing about women. And I wanted for once for us to actually just focus on the women. Because if you look at like directors and writers like Lee Daniels and, and, and Tyler Perry, they're always giving you like, woman trauma and they're giving you they they're telling you that they're centering women in the story but no they're actually just centering what these men are doing to these women in in the story and it it, it ends up becoming sort of like um trauma porn and i you can see the male gaze from that so i got so tired of of seeing stuff that um only make women you know secondary characters in their things and i wanted to do something that was just for women, but more especially just for colored women. Yes, um, in earlier this year, you wrote a blog for the Global Literature and Libraries Initiative about colored literature and how important it was for you to access that and to have more of an opportunity to be remembered and to see yourself reflected. So who are some of the colored writers that you love and that you think everyone should be aware of? Uh, firstly, it would be Rada Jacobs. Rada Jacobs is literally my like idol <laughs> i think the day i meet Rada jacobs i'm gonna lose it um Rada jacobs ronaldo comfer and um barbara boswell dr barbara boswell um are some of just are just three of like many colored women who have written um pamela yester who've who've written like amazing accounts of the colored experience if you look at men it would be chris van Vake, um who also just Really, he writes Joburg colored the, the Joburg colored experience, writes it so well. Um, and then there's like Athol Fugard, who's not colored, but I've never met 
or, or read a, a, a white writer who can write a colored experience like Athol Fugard. So for me, I consider him right up there within the colored literature lexicon because of how he wrote Busman and Lena and some of his um, plays uh, with colored characters. But back to your story, you touch on so many social issues in this really slim novel. You talk about teenage pregnancy, about gangsterism, domestic violence, disability, discrimination, drug abuse, you know, religious fundamentalism in a way. But you also weave this through the hopes and dreams of your characters. Tell me about the themes that were important for you to touch on in writing this story and how you feel about the hope of addressing these social issues almost a year after the book has come out. I think of all the themes that 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 came up, I wanted um, the view on drug addiction to be the most stark, and that's why the ending is is like that, because um, I know that everybody knows that Aldo's has a drug problem, but I wanted to show what that looks like. For the not for the person doing the drugs, but for the actual family members and the community that has to, you know, um, live with this person that and that tries to help this person and 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 what actually leads this person to doing drugs. So I didn't want to show the drug addict's view, and that's why Keegan doesn't speak for himself as a as a drug addict. But you get to see how his addiction affects everybody around him. Um, as his story moves along, especially his daughter. Um, And then I wanted to look at also sexual liberation amongst teenagers and what does that mean? Uh, So those two were the main themes I actually wanted to explore, which is the the sexual liberation that ultimately leads to the teenage pregnancy. And I hope I'm not giving spoilers here, but when you actually see that Janice was sexually responsible, you know, so she, a lot of people would take um, young mothers and they'd, they'd chalk it down to irresponsibility. But we actually see with Janice that she was a young person who was sexually active, sexually liberated, and and responsible. And what had happened to her was a violation, and that's how she became pregnant. But nobody would have seen it that way. So um, the stealthing was also something that was a really um, important thing for me to bring out. And I think then the domestic violence, which so often gets downplayed in, in the colored community especially. I think with all of these things you've just mentioned, there's a sense that for some of the characters living in El Dorado Park and for some of the characters and people who live in South Africa today, those are just normal things that happen. You know, still thing isn't seen as that big a deal or domestic violence is just something that you see over the weekend and then you get over it by the week. And so it was very powerful that you showed both how normalized they were in the community that you're writing about, but also that you called on the reader to say, hey, this isn't right. And also, that, as you said, Janice had this terrible experience of someone removing a condom, having sex with her. She falls pregnant and she takes a decision to do something that is right for her body and her future. And she's punished because of that. Um, but you also speak about teenage pregnancy and the character of Laverne. Why was this an important issue for you to talk about specifically? Um, so teenage pregnancy was important. It was sort of like an ode to my mom. 
So my mom was a young mother. Um, she had me when she was 18. And she sort of turned her life around um, with the support of my grandparents. But over the years, as, as we've come to speak about it, she's actually filled me in on how difficult it was for her because she had to go back to school. She had to change schools and she had to come home and nurse me and then go back after break because we don't live far. Well, we didn't live far from a high school. So she had to go and, and, and come and nurse me during break time and then go back to school. And, and I just wanted to write an ode to that struggle that she went through as a young mom and how she had to then navigate even what Laverne is going through is also sort of like a form of violence but it's not really um overt because Laverne's parents and and Omar um are making decisions for her child on her behalf which is what happened with my mom which is what happens when you become a young mother the adults sort of take over and they make decisions for you about your own child. Um, and you use you lose that agency. And Laverne seems to go with the flow because she doesn't she didn't really want a child, but we don't know that that maybe is 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 what's making her resent her child because she's not allowed to to make any decisions over his life. Sure. Yeah, I mean there's so much that happens with all of those characters and when you think about patriarchy as a system that tries to control women, how very often the enforcers of patriarchy are women as well and themselves, like the Omars and these families who make these decisions on behalf of other people that are patronizing in a way. One of the things that I loved about your book that I didn't know when I first bought it was that it's written in both English and Afrikaans, which as a white lady from KZN, who's <laughs> Afrikaans was average to poor on a good day, um, was really stretching for me in my reading experience. But I found that once I sort of let go of my resistance to my brain swapping between the two, it was so cool to read in both English and Afrikaans. So tell me about your decision to write to Atalik and what the response has been from readers. Shoot, the Bertha conundrum. I'm going to start calling it that. <laughs> um, I decided to, when I was writing, it's like I told you in the in the beginning, I just wrote. I didn't really think about anything. I wanted to write uh, authentically. So when I was writing these diary entries, these thoughts, these monologues, I was writing as this person. I put myself within to the character of a 18 year old model C, you know, cause I could identify with that. I put in myself into the character of a 46, 47 year old factory worker from Aldo's because I grew up around those women and those women don't speak English. They, they just don't. English actually finishes them. <laughs> you can't ask them to speak English. And my it was funny because I was raised English, which is also a whole political thing on itself, um, in my very, very Afrikaans-colored family. And my grandmother refused to speak English because she was like, she's not going to twist her tongue for no child, no matter how much she loves me. So I learned Afrikaans through my grandmother, who used to be a factory worker. So when I was writing Bertha, I thought, you know, what, the ghost of Poppy Adams is going to come and choke me if I write this character in English. And it was also part of that authenticity, but it's also part of writing Afrikaans 
into the colored canon because I think that we we as colored people are often either Kaiknet coloreds or we're like, you know, English Model C coloreds. There's never a go-between. And I wanted to show that we can be both and that we can actually, that this is our language and we can take it back and we experience life in this language. So that's why it was very important for, for me to keep um, Bertha Afrikaans after, you know, submitting to publishers. And I was very lucky and 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 that um my publisher Nadia shared my vision for Bertha and shared my my uh, love for the authenticity of of the colored experience but i mean it wouldn't have been tr- uh, like you're saying it wouldn't have been true to write even as a reader i can feel that because of how well you crafted her character that it wouldn't have been true to her to translate you would have lost so much of the emotion and the feeling and i also loved um i think it was Killer, as she sort of got more emotional about things, she switched back into Afrikaans as well, which I think is something that you do when you, if you've been speaking in a second language or a third language for a while, as soon as you feel emotional, you can't access anything but your mother tongue um, to communicate, which is really cool. And they are all such different characters. They all, I mean, they're intimately connected, but they're so different. Was there any that you found um, easier to write or more difficult to write, and why? Uh, Kaylin was easy because Kaylin was a lot of me as a teenager smushed with me as a a university student could be found in Kaylin. But also the person that or the the couple of people that Kaylin was based on, um, I could draw a lot from them. And so, so, so she was super easy. I knew I wanted her to be sexually liberated and I wanted her to be woke. And I wanted her to be this outsider that comments on all of the chaos that's going in on in the low family. So she was, she was very easy to write. Um, and that's how she eventually becomes sort of like the narrator um, because she gives you the most information and she pushes the plot forward and, um, Janice was the most difficult and it's funny because they're best friends <laughs> Janice was the most difficult because I really wanted to to flip the whole ghetto gutter rat trope on its head where you actually realize that Janice is really really smart and she's charismatic um, and she's just living this life because she wants to live this life she loves this life she loves going out and, and the nice time and, and, and all of that but it doesn't mean that she's not nuanced and smart and, and 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 has depth so to add all of that to something that's like could have been a, a stereotype was was very difficult for me um, and then Bertha was the most fun to write because all I had to do was just lean in to my grandmother and my aunts and lean into the little the things they say and so she was the most fun I think every community, every family has a Bertha. <laughs> like you can picture the, that family member skinnering over a wall, basically. <laughs> it's, it's really she's she's so flawed, but you love her so much. Like yeah, she's she's just been through the most, and she's just making her way. And she's still so young as well. Like I think when you mentioned her age for the first time, I was like, wow, this woman is. You know, she's the matriarch in her family, but she's really so so young still. And to think, you know, what would come for her in the future was really cool at the end of the story, especially because of how the story ended. You know, what will it mean for her going forward? Um, 
We, so from books to your activism, we're speaking to each other in National Albinism Awareness Month. And I've seen from your social media this week that you're doing a lot to share information about albinism, including being open about its impact on your own life, for example, your sight. Tell me more about the work that you're doing to raise public awareness and understanding of albinism um, online and offline. I think my, my journey with albinism activism has been so weird right so it, it started off with me having to do this because you have albinism you have to be a, a beacon or a role model and you have to say something and I ended up in organized activism and, and, and in the NGO space and then it made me resent it because I was just like why does it have to be me there's so many other people with albinism and you know so, but this time around, especially with this National Albinism Awareness Month, it's coming a lot from me. And it's coming a lot from me wanting to make the world more aware so that my son um, can live in a world where his mom is not considered um, an anomaly. And so that other children with albinism can actually just live their lives in peace. So I was very deliberate to not show trauma and to not share any articles or any video clips about the the trauma that people with albinism face, unless it was my own. Um, because I wanted to show albinism as this multifaceted thing. So it is, is it is a health issue, but it is also a social issue. And and how society disables people with albinism by othering us. So I wanted to show more of that rather than to to do a whole, you know, why how is your life difficult growing up? I think everybody always asks me that. And I'm just like, yes, we all know that I got teased as a child. It's it's kind of a duh. But you know let's now look and be solution oriented and and try and make the world a bit easier for children with albinism that are being born i mean it's linked to your feminism surely because it's it's a choice not to do trauma porn only not to only talk about the the bad things but also to say i'm actually a whole person you know a disability is one part of my identity it's not the whole but it does have real social impact which i think is a very powerful choice that you've made but I think it's really incredible that you have taken up the mantle and you're doing it so publicly and so openly on Twitter and social media and just saying to people, you know, like, don't ignore this issue. Um, how is the fundraiser for your site going? Um, so we're actually doing really well. Um, there's been a bit of a lull, but I think it's just because it's it's been the break between when people get paid and then when they get paid again. So, um, but I've been super grateful for every rand that has been raised um, because I I know that this comes from people who who really want to see who are, who are rooting for me who want to see the best for me and who actually want me to see things which is very important because um, I I never thought that I'd even raise a cent so to be within the twenty thousands is it's surreal even and and I'm so grateful that that people have taken up this cause on my behalf and and I'm also grateful that this shows um light to how expensive mobility aids are for people with disabilities for us just to be able to see for us just to be able to move around um 
it is actually quite expensive. And this means that not everybody with a disability is going to have access to these life-changing technologies. Yeah, I think that's a really important point that you're making there is the is the affordability and the inequity of access, which just re- reproduces old patterns of of inequality, <laughs> you know, like it's a circle. Um, and I'm so excited for you um, and I really hope that you meet your target soon. It's really amazing that you've done this. So what is next for you in your writing and career? You were a historian, then an activist, now a writer. What's next? Sure, and a lot. <laughs> uh, I think what what's next is is more writing, more stories. I really want to build a body of work that I can be proud of. Um, and then just for me to discover more of who I am, I... I've recently just come to terms with my mental illness. So for me to now start living my life, being consciously aware of how things can affect me mentally. And I think, funny enough, I learned this from from you and your um, response email that you that you have when someone sends you an email. And it is it was so important for me. I, I sometimes even go back to that email to realize that, you know, no... Jen is right. Like you need to make space for yourself. Otherwise you're just going to find yourself working 24 hours a day, especially if you're like someone like me that has a day job, but also is a writer. Um, so I'm, I'm learning to breathe and I'm learning to pause a lot more. And I think that's like the most exciting thing for me about the future is that I'm learning to find sort of pockets of peace within all the chaos that is my work. That sounds beautiful. I'm very, very happy for you. I think we a, a really feminist idea is the idea that you're enough just being. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to please anyone. But you're enough just as you are. So I'm really glad that you're on that journey. I think all it's going to do is reinforce your ability to keep doing the things that you want to do when you want to do them. So it's great that you've, you've set off on that path. So I ask all of the guests that come on the show three questions at the end. The first is, what are what is a book or what are some books that have inspired your feminism? Um, it would definitely have to be Confessions of a Gambler, which is funny. <laughs> but yes, Confessions of a Gambler, um, Philosophant, um wow, there's... Well, Junie now, again, I, I read Junie now and then it, it, it reinvigorated um, my my want to fight for, against the patriarchy. Um, I think also, and wrote my story anyway, was a very recent one by, by Barbara Boswell that I read that showed me how our novels have always been feminism, um, especially novels written by women have, have always been feminism. Um, so yeah, those are some of the books that have, have, have inspired me so far. And do you have a quote that you love or that you live by? Maya Angelou's, if someone shows you who they are, believe them, is one of the big ones that I'm, that I always sort of keep when I have to interact with people. Um, and then there's a song in, uh, a line in a song by Kelani that says, if I'm going to be anything, I'm going to be a bad bitch, which is something that I also try to live by. <laughs> so yeah, it's um, a lot of song, song line, lines from songs as well that I, that I keep 
close. What does it mean to you to be a bad bitch? Just to, to own my truth, to own myself, to, to fight for what's mine, um, to not hold space for negativity or negative people. Um, yeah, to just be, to be boss at everything that I do. Sounds good to me. <laughs> and then finally, what is your advice for other feminists on their journeys? Don't, don't forget the intersections at which we lie. There's, there's, there's women, womanhood and race. There's womanhood and disability. There's womanhood and queerness. There's all these intersections, womanhood and class privilege, um, womanhood and poverty, you know. So there's all these se- uh, intersections at which feminism lies that we need to make sure we don't overlook. We, we shouldn't overlook trans women. We shouldn't overlook gender non-binary or gender queer women, uh, gender queer pe- persons um, within female bodies. You know, we should always be cognizant that there we don't know everything and that we should be open to learn things solid solid advice thank you so much for coming on the show Tyrion, for your writing for your work i think everything you're doing at the moment is really amazing and i look forward to the next book and the next output and just to seeing you know you carry on doing what you're doing so thank you very much for your time Thanks so much for tuning into this week's episode of Living While Feminist with me, Jen Thorpe. Please do tune in next week to hear more from feminists about their lives and experiences. Take care of yourselves. Thank you so much for having me, Jen. This was so much fun.